0: So well, let me say what a privilege it is for me to be back here. It's been quite a while. I can't even remember when it was, but I was here, and it's good to be back. So thanks to the elders in the session for their invite. As we come to Jonah chapter 1, we come to this passage, and we come to this great storm. There are two things that storms reveal in our lives. We all go through storms. And the first is that there is a God. And second, storms reveal who we really are. When great storms come into our lives, many start to fear. They realize that they can't face life all on their own. That The storm is too great. They can't handle it. They're not capable of dealing with the situations of life. They're not adequate. And so almost always people get religious. And in our narrative we see this. The mariners, as the storm comes upon their lives in the Mediterranean Sea, they call each out to their gods. They call out to the God of the sea, the God of the storm, the God of the dry land, the God of the sun. But nothing happens. They don't receive help. In fact, the storm gets more and more turbulent. And so then they awake Jonah and call on him. To call out to the God for safety. The God he knows. Now the text doesn't tell us whether Jonah did. He probably didn't. Because we know his spiritual condition at this time. He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. How sad. The only one. The only person who knew the Lord. The only one who was able To call out to the Lord for help is silent. He's not able to give any sound counsel. Surrounded by all these unbelievers who are frantically looking for help, Jonah has nothing to offer, he is powerless in the time of need. He is surrounded by unbelievers who are in a crisis and he's unable to serve them. And what we learn this morning from this passage as we come to the Lord's table this morning is twofold. First, that all the storms of life, of your life, my life, are precursors of the major storm yet to come. And second, that there is a blessed escape to the storm as we find refuge in God's provision. So we're going to look at this passage, verses 11 through 16, under three headings. The first is the Mariner's revealing question. The Mariner's Revealing Question, verse 11. But we learn first from verse 7 that the Mariner's found out who the culprit was, upon whose account the storm had come. And then in verse 9, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has been revealed as the deity who has been angered, the one who's been offended. So now in verse 11 the mariners they demand a solution from Jonah. Their lives are in danger and increasingly so. And as you read the passage you see how the author tells us the sea verse 11 grew more and more tempestuous. The storm's intensity is increasing and it's obvious to everyone aboard. They're throwing over their cargo, and the storm bears down, and they're running out of options. They don't know what to do. And interestingly, the mariners understood that Yahweh, Jonah's God, had to be appeased. There's no other way. So they inquire of the prophet as to what punishment Yahweh wanted to minister to Jonah to secure the Lord's favor. Now, the question they ask is very pointed. Notice, verse 13, uh, 11. What shall we do to you, to you, Jonah, that the sea may quiet down for us? Now, the question is pointed, but it's also revealing. Because their question implies... A recognition that some sort of punishment for Jonah is in order. They even offer to serve as agents for Yahweh to administer the punishments. What shall we do to you, Jonah, they say. For their own sake, they had to do something about Jonah. Jonah. For Jonah's light or Jonah's flight from God had imperiled their lives. And by avoiding his responsibility, Jonah forced responsibility on the mariners. Do you see that? They were caught up in this conflict, which was not of their making. It was because of Jonah. And the passage is abundantly clear. And so it is, isn't it, with the nature of sin. We're never an island to ourselves. Never. There are always ripples out. Our sin, our rebellion against God will always, always inevitably draw others into our circle, into our dilemma, and endanger their lives as well. And we see this so obviously in families, don't we? The unfaithfulness of a spouse has devastating effects on the immediate family and the extended family and often for generations. We see this so clearly in the life of David. His one time lustful look at Bathsheba brought about an avalanche of trouble in the household, his household for generations. We see this in the life of Eli in the early days of Samuel. We not only endanger our own lives because of our sin, we threaten the lives of those around us. And this is what is happening here. And the mariners, they understand it. They are recognizing that their lives are in danger. And they know that it's Jonah's God who is responsible for the intensity of the storm. And so what did they do? They asked Jonah for his recommendation. And so the mariners, revealing question. Second, Jonah's shocking answer. How will he reply? Are you ready for this? This This is amazing. Verse 12. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now this is an extraordinary suggestion, don't you think? I mean, pick me up, throw me into the sea? That seems far too drastic of measures. Wasn't there anything else? Do you have any other suggestions, Jonah? How did Jonah come by on that recommendation? Why did Jonah give that recommendation anyway? How did he know that that would be the solution to the raging sea? There's only one answer. God told them. God told him. When Jonah's sin was exposed, God's silence was ended. And Jonah now spoke as the prophet of the Lord once again. The man whose witness had been silenced because of his secret sin became the mouthpiece of God. As the crew was on the brink of disaster, pick me up, he says, and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. It seems unconscionable. They too recognize that Jonah was the culprit But to throw him overboard, that seemed just too extreme. And notice how Jonah puts the responsibility of his death on these poor distraught mariners. Pick me up like you pick me up. Throw me, hurl me into the sea, he says. Now, think about it for a minute. What prevented Jonah from just hopping over the side of the boat? They do that nowadays, don't they? Just jump overboard so that the mariners don't have to throw him overboard. Why was this awful responsibility given to the mariners? Well, here we need to... Recognized that Jonah's suggestion, his recommendation, was ultimately God's word. It was a message from heaven. Jonah is speaking again as a mouthpiece of Yahweh. The God who created the heavens and the earth and all things. And by commanding the mariners to hurl Jonah overboard, God was up to something glorious because he was not dealing just with jonah he's now dealing with all the mariners they were meant to recognize through this that it was yahweh and not jonah who would be the source of their salvation god was working in their hearts you see it was god who would save them In just the same way that God had declared through Jonah how they were to be saved. But acting according to God's word is not easily done, is it? We know that. And especially for these mariners. Wasn't there an other way? Just something else, not that extreme, that could spare both Jonah's life and the mariners' life? So quite naturally, they were reluctant to follow through on Yahweh's command. Notice verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But all their efforts were in vain. The harder they tried, the more tempestuous the sea became. Now, back in verse 11, we have an editorial note there by the author. And he says, The sea grew more and more tempestuous. But now, notice in verse 13 what he says For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Did you notice that? Against them. They had become cognizant that the storm was intensifying now to their response, their attempts to get back to shore. It was very obvious now to the mariners that Jonah's God was not in favor of their chosen method of dealing with Jonah's predicament and the storm. Though the mariners desired to save the life of Jonah seems admirable, doesn't it? It wasn't sound and it wasn't safe. If Jonah's word was truly the word of the living God, the God of heaven and earth, the sovereign over the sea and the dry land, then what they were doing was in direct conflict to Yahweh's word. The life of the man who spoke the word of God must be given up if the crew was to be saved. There's only one solution. One solution. And as always, it's Yahweh's solution. All other human attempts are futile. And they had finally come to recognize this very thing. There are four words in verse 13 that's really the turning point in the mariner's story. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not but they could not the scriptures say and I wonder dear friend if you have come to this recognition yourself you have tried to live life on your own separate from the word of the living God you have chosen to live your life apart from the word of God apart from Bending the knee and surrendering to Yahweh, the God who made the heavens and the earth. Of surrendering your knee to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and living your life for Him. But the more and more you try, the more difficult life becomes. In fact, the more you try, the deeper you're digging your grave. It's interesting to note the author's choice of words in verse 13. If you have the ESV, you'll notice that there's a little chew after the phrase, nevertheless, the men rode hard. Now, if you carry your eye down to the bottom of the page, you'll notice that the second footnote reads this. and says, Hebrew, the men dug in. As they dug their oars into the sea to try to make it back to dry land. Now, the verb to dig is not, it's not the usual idiom for rowing a ship is it? We use that word in terms of digging into the ground. In fact, if you just turn your page over to Amos, chapter 9, verse 2, just a couple pages back, verse 2, it has the same verb, if they dig into Sheol, which is the place of the death. Now, do you see what the author is doing here? He's actually what he's saying by the use of this word. Though the mariners are attempting to row their way back to dry land, in reality, he's saying, they were digging a hole to Sheol, the place of the dead. In other words, they were digging their own graves. That's what they're doing. And that's what everyone does who does not submit to the God who is our salvation. You dig your own grave. And finally, these mariners then come to the awareness that their attempts to row back of their plan to escape the judgment of God was futile. It was futile, utterly futile. They would die, they would perish. And as courageous as it might seem for them to save Jonah, it actually was quite foolish. And that's what the mariners discovered. They thought they would do it their own way, but they finally came to discover that their way was the way of death. And the author is underscoring that for us so powerfully here. They were digging their own graves. The storm intensified in response to their attempts to dig through God's wrath until they discovered that they could not. They could not do it on their own. And so the author is saying to us this morning, do you see the futility of seeking to escape the wrath of God on your own? You can't do it. You cannot do it. And so the mariners revealing question. Jonah's man, um... Amazing answer. And now, Yahweh's salvation. So what do mariners do? What must they do for the sea to quiet down? How can they possibly escape the wrath of God, the just judgment of Yahweh expressed in the raging sea? What must they do? Well, verse 14 Therefore, they call out to the Lord. The Lord. Notice that. Capital letters, the Lord. That's a remarkable turn of events. Back in verse 5, as we read it, when the storm of God's judgment first came upon them, the author tells us that each cried out to his own God singularly to all these gods but now notice what they did collectively they call out to Israel's God the only true and living God together they cry out oh Lord Lord let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood But you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now, my friends, this is a remarkable prayer. A remarkable prayer. First, they're praying to the Hebrew God, Yahweh. They plead that they would not perish on account of this man Jonah. In other words, they don't want to be held guilty for shedding innocent blood. Now, they're not implying by any means that Jonah is guiltless, but they were concerned, you see, that lest they cast Jonah into the sea, they themselves would be guilty, held accountable for his death. And then they make this remarkable confession. For you, O Lord, have done it as it pleased you. They have come to acknowledgement that Israel's God is indeed sovereign over all. That he is greater than all the gods of the nations. That he is the great and eternal God. The God of gods. The Lord of lords. That he is greater than every God. Did you hear what these mariners were confessing? That their gods were worthless. They were worthless. They can't do anything. And that this God, Israel's God, Yahweh, he is the only true God, the one who alone is to receive worship and not only worship, but he is the only one who can quiet the sea calm the raging of the sea. And so it's a remarkable confession of faith in Israel's God. They've come to recognize that Jonah's God was in fact the true God. And it was through, remarkably, through Jonah's word that they had come to put their faith in his God. And believe the word of the Lord, the only way of salvation. not that remarkable? Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, spoke the word of the Lord. And they believed the word of the Lord as surely as you believe the word of the Lord today. And they were saved. They were granted faith. In Israel's God. And having made the petition to Yahweh, the crew turn back now to their somber task. According to the word of Jonah, which is the word of Yahweh, which now they confess. They lift Jonah up and hurl him into the sea and the sea immediately responds it ceases from its raging just as Jonah the prophet of God had predicted in verse 12 and the scriptures tell us that if that if a word of the prophet rings true i mean is fulfilled it rings true that this is the man of God who's speaking the word On behalf of God, Jonah, he might be a disobedient prophet, but nevertheless a true prophet of the only true God. And indeed he was. Now this is the third time that the author uses, the author I believe is Jonah, uses the word hurl in this chapter. The author wants to make it abundantly clear that the hurling of the mariners recalls the connecting back to the hurling of the wind by the Lord in verse 4. And ultimately, he wants to communicate that the mariners are now acting on God's behalf in this manner. As the Lord hurled the wind upon the sea, now the mariners are hurling Jonah into that sea. And there's only one thing, see, and they understand this. There's only one thing that would appease the wrath of Almighty God. As symbolized by the raging sea it was nothing less than the sacrifice of one man god's storm ended when jonah was thrown overboard as he was sacrificed and the ship's crew was saved Isn't it a great story? Isn't it just an amazing narrative? It's glorious. And do you know why? Because this narrative directs us to an infinitely greater story that concerns all of us. All of us. It's the story of the only way of escape from the wrath of Almighty God, the one who rules the heavens and the earth and the sea. Escape from the anger of God's judgment on account of your sin, my sin, Adam's sin. When the mariners realized that they could not beat the sea, no matter how hard and desperately they tried, they turned in their desperation to what God said through his prophet, and they staked their lives on the one sacrifice, the man, Jonah. And so this narrative then points us forward, doesn't it, so gloriously? So gloriously to the new covenant. Jonah is a type of Jesus Christ. He was the one who showed Israel the glory of salvation in and through the one Jesus Christ. As Jonah offered himself up To appease the raging storm. So our Lord Jesus Christ offered himself up. To appease the wrath of God. As the New Testament speaks of it as the propitiatory sacrifice. Appeasing God's wrath. So that it might deflect from you and me. Cast out by man. Forsaken by even his own father. He offered himself up as a sacrifice. Bearing the entire brunt of God's wrath against sin. Just as Jonah did not take his own life by jumping overboard... So Jesus did not take his own life. The gospel writer Luke tells us in his gospel that speaking of our Lord, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. As the mariners lifted up Jonah and hurled him to his death, so the New Testament scriptures tell us that the wicked men lifted up our Lord Jesus Christ on the tree and gave him over to his death. But it was according to the will and the word of the Lord. As Isaiah tells us, it was the Lord's will to crush him. And as the mariners confessed this, For you, O Lord, you have done as it pleased you. And this is exactly what the Apostle Peter says on that great day of Pentecost, on that great day of the resurrection. Peter acknowledged that Jesus was lifted up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Just as Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him when, he's, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Do you see, dear friends, it was God's design for your salvation. Just like in our passage. God's design to save many Mariners. Yes, he he was willing to use guilty men just like these mariners. They too by nature, as Paul tells us so profoundly in Romans 1, they were under God's wrath. But it was God's gracious plan through the sacrifice of the greater than Jonah that we find salvation from the impending wrath of God. Oh, this, is, this is the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of our sin, of your sin, your rebellion against Almighty God, God's judgment has come. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, and we're all caught up in it. We're all in the same boat, we might say, and there's no one exempt from the wrath of God because there's no one without guilt. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wonder of the gospel, the great story of the Christian faith is that though we are all guilty before God, God, in His infinite mercy, His tender mercies, His amazing grace, designed a way of escape for sinners through the one sacrifice of His dear Son on the cross. Theologians throughout the ages have asked the question, was there no other way? No other way than his own son? God tells us in Jonah, there was no other way. There was only one way. One way that God designed for the salvation of sinners. One way of escape, and that's through the sacrifice of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Christ was thrown into the storm of God's wrath. On those three hours of judgment on the cross, there he endured the tempest. The intensity grew and grew. And it came upon him because of you and me. And at that time, our Lord Jesus who was the beloved son of the father became the most ugly the one who became sin for us who knew no sin but he came became sin for us bearing the judgment of your sin so that you might be saved So the question is, are you saved? Are you saved? Are you saved? Have you been saved from the judgment of God? That's the question. Have you been saved from his wrath? Now perhaps there are some here who don't even know there's a storm. You know, there are many people like that in this world. They go around. And they don't even know that God's wrath is upon them, that his wrath abides upon them. They're, they're oblivious to the storm. But you need to hear this. You need to hear it very clearly from God's holy word. Just because you don't acknowledge it doesn't mean there's not a storm. No, God's word tells us that outside of Christ Jesus, the storm is fierce and tempestuous. And the only wise thing, the only wise thing, the only safe thing, the only sure thing to do is to flee to Christ for refuge. There is no way that you can deal with God's wrath on your own. There is no other solution, none other than the one that God has provided. And perhaps there are others who feel they can go alone, do it themselves, save themselves. And if you feel this way this morning, you'll avoid, you see, giving yourself entirely up to the Lord Jesus Christ because you think you have something to offer. My dear friends, if you see the wonder of the gospel in this passage, the wonder of Christ Jesus offering himself freely for sinners, becoming your propitiatory sacrifice, you will know by the power of the Holy Spirit that this Savior is worthy of your full devotion. He is worthy of your worship, of your devotion, of your life. There's nothing too great that you can offer in response to his salvation. So how should you respond? Well, we're given instruction. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, More literally, literally, it reads this. Then the men feared with a great fear, Yahweh. Glorious. With Jonah out of the picture for a moment. He's down in the sea. The spotlight falls now on the ship's crew. Upon the church. And though one might expect all traces of fear to vanish from these strong, burly mariners. The opposite is actually true. Now they are fearing exceedingly. And as we read the whole passage, we come across that phrase now a number of times. But the author repeats it one last time. The standard expression of the mariners involving fear. But he does it with a significant addition. The men Feared with a great fear, exceeding fear, Yahweh. That <laughs> great, that was wonderful. They're fearing Yahweh. The fear the the mariners experience at the end of this narrative is so different than what they experienced as they were in the midst of the storm. The storm no longer threatens their life. No, Yahweh's anger has been appeased. No longer does it hang over their heads, condemning them to death and judgment. Their confusion and sense of helplessness evaporates. They have been liberated. They are saved. And there is no one left to fear but Yahweh, the Lord, the God who is my salvation. They're fearing God. And the mariners now are, are gripped, not by the storm, it's, it's, it's all over, but they're gripped in awe of the majesty and the greatness of Jonah's God. There is no God like Jonah's God. And they have this profound sense. That it's only, only Jonah's God who can hear their prayers. It's only Jonah's God who has been responsive to their greatest need and his willingness to help them in their time of need. Now, was there a God like that anywhere else? A God who hears us. A God who saves us. A God who knows our need, our greatest need. And provides. Oh, they had never encountered a deity like this. A God who's ready to deliver. As they come and make a humble petition, O Lord, O Lord, they cry. As a result, they experienced the real fear of God. They became God-fearers. They were in awe, not cowering anymore, not frightened, but now in awe and wonder in the God of their salvation. And now notice this fear of the Lord is no mere religious sentiment. It finds its expression in grateful worship. The author here, as he finishes, rounds out the story, he describes their worship with surprise, as though, as though shocked that these gentle or Gentile mariners would offer acceptable worship to God. Like, how does that happen? Jonah's overboard. How does this happen? Surprised, at least for the reader. Because the mission of Jonah, remember, was to go to Nineveh. But here at the end of this chapter, we find a bunch of pagan mariners now offering acceptable worship to Israel's God. An unexpected end. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Mediterranean Sea. But that's just how our God is, isn't he? The God of wonders. That in his infinite wisdom, he uses human rebellion as an instrument to accomplish his most glorious purpose. Oh, the wonder, the amazement of God's grace, his tender mercy to those who do not ask it. And that's why the Apostle Paul at the end of chapter 3 when he speaks of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it displays the multifaceted wisdom of God. There is no God like this in all the earth. A God to be feared with holy, reverent, awe-inspiring fear. And our response our only response is to bow before his majesty in holy worship, vowing vows to our God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, there is no God like you in all the earth, a God who comes to us, though inhabiting eternity, yet coming down in the person of your blessed Son, Jesus Christ, to deliver us from our misery. But not only delivering us from our misery, but enabling us now to enjoy your holy presence, to enjoy the fullness of fellowship with you through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, dear fathers, we come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. We come recognizing that you are the God who has made perfect provision for all our sins in the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so, may one and all confess his name here this morning and work in all of our hearts renewed love and devotion for you, Lord. For the amazing wonder of your grace and mercy to us in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Congregation, let's stand and sing together in response. We have two responses. This and the table. Selection 403. 403. Not what my hands have done. <laughs>